0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 25th, 2010. In his book, Jesus, A Biography from a Believer, The British historian Paul Johnson suggests that Jesus had read the literary classics of ancient Greece and Rome. That's conjecture on his part, of course, and impossible to prove. But what is clear is that Jesus talked about God in ways that contrast sharply with the violent, jealous, and conniving gods of Homer, with Plato's eternal forms, or with Aristotle's unmoved mover. When the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, Luke 11.1, 1, he didn't respond by suggesting some techniques or some regimen. He said that genuine prayer depends upon knowing the character of God rather than on human effort. Three readings for this week give us glimpses of the divine nature that encourages us to pray. In the words of the Lord's Prayer, God is, quote-unquote, in heaven. That is, he's infinite, mysterious, and beyond human comprehension. But we should never imply that God is remote or unknowable. Jesus says that God is not only high and lifted up, but that he's near and dear to every person. The first words of the Lord's Prayer capture this perfectly. Our Father who art in heaven. If you want to know what God is like, says Jesus, he's like a tender father. Paul says the same thing when he writes to the Romans. We shouldn't relate to God as a slave who fears a master, says Paul but rather as a child who's in a safe relationship with a protective parent. Abba, Father. Romans 8.15, Galatians four six. Abba is the Aramaic word that Jesus used that means something like Papa. The word is used only three times in the New Testament and conveys a shocking sense of human intimacy with the divine infinite. It's a word that little children, first learning to speak, used for their father, and that Jesus himself used to speak to God in Mark 14 36. And then the prophet Hosea compares God to a spurned lover. Throughout his prophecy, he compares God's head over heels love for Israel to the raw emotions of a jilted, aggrieved, and passionate suitor. Despite his justified anger at the unfaithfulness of his woman, he simply cannot help himself because he loves her so much. And because of that love, he will not give up even a one-sided relationship. In Hosea... God's word of judgment to Israel is always a next to the last word. It's not his last word. The last word is always one of redemptive love. To communicate the radical nature of his love, God commands Hosea to enact a living parable or a symbolic act. He instructs Hosea to marry a whore named Gomer. The first 3 chapters of Hosea describe this shocking symbolic act, the point of which is simple but powerful. We read in Hosea chapter 3 verse 1, "Go, love the harlot Gomer. Love her just as the Lord loves the Israelites even though they turn to other gods." Israel had prostituted herself in every way imaginable: religiously, politically, and economically. But God still loved her. He longed to woo and allure her, to speak tenderly to her, to show my love. Three times he still promises to, quote, betroth Israel to me forever. In a beautiful play on words that the Hebrew reads, literally, I will show my love to the one called not my love. A few chapters later, God longs to heal Israel bind up her wounds, restore her, and to come to her like the winter rains after a long, hot, dry summer. And finally, in exasperation, God blurts out some of the most tender and beautiful words in all of Scripture. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admah? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor devastate Ephraim again. For I am God, not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. Hosea 118 and 9. So our hope and prayer resides in that one line. Hosea's God is very different from Homer's God's. He's a tender, patient, and forgiving God, no matter what we've done. And he's not a mere human. Even the ancient story of Sodom and Gomorrah, so infamous for a God of fire and brimstone, portrays God as an extraordinarily lenient judge. Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah, but there's a caveat. He asks God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham showed no concern for the wicked. He just wanted God to spare the righteous. And in Genesis eighteen twenty-six, God then responds, if I find 50 people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham kept haggling with God, perhaps wondering how low the crazy moral calculus might go. In the end, God promised to spare the entire city if there were but a tiny handful of righteous people. Because God is like a tender father, a passionate lover, and a lenient judge, in the Gospels for this week, Jesus invites us to pray. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, he tells us. If a person will answer the door at midnight when a visitor knocks, how much more will God respond to our prayers? And when a child asks for basic nourishment like a fish or an egg, no parent would ever give him something poisonous like a snake or a scorpion. And so how much more will God give good gifts to his children, says Jesus. The Psalms for this week thus encourage us to trust ourselves to the loving providence of a good God. Psalm 138, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. In Psalm 85, 12, the Lord will indeed give what is good. In the book, Sayings of the Desert Fathers, there's a story about Macarius the Great, who was born around the year 300. One day someone asked him how to pray. He responded, there's no need at all to make a long discourse. It's enough to stretch out one's hands and say, Lord, as you will, and as you know, have mercy. And if the conflict grows fiercer, say, Lord, help. He knows very well what we need, and he shows us his mercy. About that same time, another desert monk, Evagrius Ponticus, contemplated his own misguided desires in light of the Lord's Prayer. In his younger years, Evagrius fell in love with the wife of an imperial official in Constantinople. Palladius writes, the woman loved him in return, whereas Evagrius wished to break off with the woman, who by now was eager and frantic, but he could not do so, so caught up was he in the bonds of concupiscence. After a disturbing dream, and on the advice of the famous Melania, one of the wealthiest women of her time, Evagrius fled to the desert. For the last 16 years of his life, one of the greatest and most refined Christian intellectuals of his day submitted himself to the unlettered Coptic peasants of the harsh Egyptian desert. Today he's recognized as one of the most distinguished practitioners and guides of the early desert Christians. In his tiny little book, Chapters on Prayer, we glimpse some of what Evagrius learned in the desert. He writes... Pray not to this end that your own desires be fulfilled. You can be sure they do not fully accord with the will of God. Once you have learned to accept this point, pray instead that thy will be done in me. In every matter, ask him in this way for what is good and for what confers profit on your soul. For you yourself do not seek this so completely as he does. Lord, teach us to pray. Reflections on the character of God in the Lord's Prayer. For books this week, I review Paul Johnson, Jesus, a, bio- a biography from a believer. New York, Viking, 2010, 242 pages. With over 40 books and numerous awards to his credit, the British Roman Catholic, Paul Johnson, is recognized as one of today's preeminent historians, journalists, and public intellectuals. So it's encouraging to have a book by him in which he unabashedly professes his faith. My desire, he says in this book, is to convey the joy and nourishment I receive in following Jesus' footsteps and pondering his words. He especially shines when he elucidates the Gospels with his knowledge of ancient Mediterranean history. For Johnson, the four Gospels, quote, are the truth. What they tell us actually happened, end quote. Nonetheless, I was hoping for much more from a scholar of Johnson's caliber, The book is little more than a simple rehearsal of the gospel narratives with long quotes. I appreciated his unapologetic affirmation of the gospel's authenticity and accuracy, but was disappointed at the total lack of critical inquiry or theological commentary. I found his use of the King James Version strange, and at times even off-putting, as when John the Baptist confesses, quote, whose shoe-latchet I am not worthy to unloose. There's also nothing at all personal in the book, which instead has the feel of a detached scholar. He repeatedly insists that Jesus' work was, quote-unquote, entirely spiritual and apolitical, to prepare us for heaven rather to engage us in the present world. And numerous passages cried out for explanations, like this one from the Transfiguration. And I quote, Jesus was partly outside the structure of time and space. A man, but not only a man. He was also God, Son of the Father. He was living outside time and space, as well as upon the earth. So if you have time to read 200 pages, Skip this book and read perhaps two other biographies of Jesus. First, Gary Gary Wills, What Jesus Meant, or the book by Mary Gordon, Reading Jesus. Better yet, just sit down and read the four Gospels. The title of the book, Jesus, a Biography from a Believer, by Paul Johnson. For film this week, I review a documentary movie called Lynch from the year 2007. Silly me, what was I thinking? I thought by watching this bio-documentary that I would learn about the life and work of the renegade filmmaker David Lynch. But about the only things you learn are that he's a chain smoker, that he's practiced transcendental meditation every day for 30 years and that he absolutely loves being on the other side of the camera where he's the star and center of attention. Watching this documentary is like watching one of its film one of his films. It's extremely creative and has little linear narrative. It's more like looking at an abstract painting or thinking of an interior dreamscape, disjointed, disassociative, vivid, scary, and sometimes an unrelated stream of consciousness. In the last half of the film, we watch while Lynch directs his movie Inland Empire, a three-hour marathon that he shot with an off-the-rack sunny digital camera and made up as he went along. That film, for example, included life-size rabbits dressed in suits that appeared in a living room. Prostitutes danced the 60s locomotion. Time morphed, be- morphed back and forth between past present and future, place moved between Poland and Hollywood. Lynch is either coy or just brutally honest when the only description that he gives of Inland Empire is that it's, quote, about a woman in trouble, end quote. David Lynch fans and film buffs will rave at this documentary, but my wife quit watching halfway through. The title of the film, Lynch, a bio-documentary about the filmmaker, David Lynch. And finally this week, we continue our series of 11 Addresses to the Lord by John Berryman. This week we have 11 Addresses to the Lord, number 9. Surprise me on some ordinary day with a blessing gratuitous. Even I've done good beyond their expectations. What count we then upon your bounty? Interminable. An old theologian asserts that even to say you exist is misleading. Uh Uh-huh. I buy that second-century fellow. I press his withered, glorifying hand. You certainly do not as I exist, impersonating as well the meteorite and flaring in your sun your waterfall or blind in caves pallid fishes. Bear in mind me, who have forgotten nothing and who continues. I may not foreknow and fail much to remember. You sustain imperial desitudes, at the curb a widow. 11 Addresses to the Lord, number 9, by John Berryman. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, July twenty 2010, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.